Bronchiolitis is a common viral lower respiratory tract infection that affects babies and young children. It should be a consideration in children under two years of age, but more commonly this is seen in the under ones and is the leading cause of hospitalisation in this age group. The incidence of bronchiolitis peaks in the winter months with a seasonal pattern of most cases between November and April, which is why we've chosen this month to bring you an episode on this topic. Most cases are mild and clear up within two to three weeks without the need for any treatment and can be managed safely in the community and discharged by paramedics. Some children, however, do develop more severe symptoms and require transport to hospital and require intervention. This month, we're going to be looking at the assessment of the child presenting with bronchiolitis, deciding which children can be safety netted and discharged home with advice and which children require hospital, as well as the treatments that do and don't work for this condition. So let's get started. Ambulance General Broadcast, any vehicles available to book on or come clear for an outstanding Category 1 emergency. So hello and welcome to another episode of General Broadcast. My name's Josh, I'm a specialist paramedic in critical care. My name's Simon, I'm an advanced clinical practitioner in emergency medicine. And this month we are talking bronchiolitis. So Simon, you came up with the idea for this month's topic. Why bronchiolitis? Why are we talking about it? So we're going to talk about this one because um, I happen to be doing my paediatric specialist placement at the moment for uh, six months of uh, looking after children. And it's just massively on the rise. It's literally, I'm seeing it day after day after day. And one, I've got quite proficient at it. Two, I see a lot of children being conveyed that actually probably could be managed at home. And there's a lot of uh, myths surrounding it and a lot of practice questions that I don't think is taught that well to paramedics. We've noticed in Australia over their winter, there's been a humongous spike of bronchiolitis cases. And the primary reason that's been put down for this is because of the COVID-19 pandemic, where last year everyone was in lockdowns and wearing masks and washing hands and being a little bit more protective around respiratory illnesses, that had a knock-on effect. And obviously, no, no or hardly any children caught the viruses that cause bronchiolitis. So we barely saw any of it last winter. The problem now is that we're now seeing the knock-on effect that because children haven't built up any immunity or resistance to these viruses, we are now seeing two years worth in one year. So uh, I think we need to prepare for a heavy winter of bronchiolitis and feverish illnesses and respiratory illnesses in children. And it starts about now. In fact, it started a little bit early this year, but it's starting around now. So I think we, we need to be good at it. Definitely. And what better time to revise this condition and uh, have it at the forefront of our minds. Let's get into it. So we're going to start off, as we always do, by looking a little bit at the pathophysiology of this. So bronchiolitis, as the name suggests, is an inflammation of the bronchioles, and it's caused by a viral infection. Now, the most common causative organism is the respiratory syncytial virus, RSV, and that makes up about 60 to 80% of the cases that we're likely to see. There are other viral causes that make up a, a smaller proportion, things like adenovirus, rhinovirus, coronavirus. Uh, and we're not just talking about COVID-19, we're talking about the, the family of coronavirus, influenza, parainfluenza, but they make up a, a, a much smaller chunk of uh, the, the causes of bronchiolitis. So it, it's more than likely, and you'll hear people talking about RSV uh, sometimes 
uh, interchangeably. Now, there's two distinct stages of bronchiolitis development. The first of these affects the upper airway, where the virus causes inflammation of the epithelium in the nasopharynx, resulting in nasal congestion, rhinorrhea, and common coldy type symptoms that we collectively term chorizal symptoms. The second stage sees the virus move down lower to the respiratory tract. This is normally within one to three days of the chorizal symptoms starting. And this is where the inflammation develops in the small airways and the bronchioles, resulting in edema of these smaller airways and a marked increase in the secretion of mucus, causing plugging and narrowing of these small airways. This gives the characteristic findings of expiratory wheeze due to the narrow airways and turbulent airflow and the crackles of mucus plugging in the airways as they reopen. This combination then decreases the concentration of oxygen in the alveoli and therefore the amount of oxygen that moves into the circulation, resulting in hypoxemia. In order to combat this, the child will need to breathe harder and faster to compensate, which we see as tachypneia, tachycardia and an increased work of breathing. This increased respiratory effort often results in the child having difficulty feeding, which can lead to dehydration, and this, in combination with the increased workload of breathing, can in severe cases result in the child tiring, becoming lethargic, and in the worst of cases result in decompensated respiratory failure. Most cases, however, are self-limiting and don't become this severe in children. They generally will recover within 7-10 to 10 days, with a full resolution of the cough normally within 2-3 to three weeks. So that's uh, quite right for most children. But there is, however, a subgroup of patients with some comorbidities that we just need to think about a little bit more because they're probably going to need to be considered as a higher risk that might require hospitalisation. These include anyone with congenital lung disease or congenital heart disease, children that are younger than three months of age, prematurity, so that's under 32 weeks, anyone with Down syndrome or cystic fibrosis, anyone who's immunocompromised or anyone who has a neuromuscular disease. Again, they're not absolute, so they have to go to hospital, but we should probably just have a lower threshold and be more concerned when bronchiolitis develops in this cohort of patients. I think it's worth making everyone aware, Josh, that if you're looking into literature and trying to do reading around the subject of bronchiolitis, if you're looking at the UK and places like Australia and New Zealand's guidelines for bronchiolitis, you'll see similar themes and topics. But if you're going to look at um, data from the US, they do have slightly different um, descriptors of bronchiolitis or what they class as bronchiolitis. Uh, and it varies quite a lot in the epidemiology and pathophysiology. So it's just worth being aware that if you're looking at US studies, that it, it might be a bit different than what we're going to talk about today. So that's a little bit about bronchiolitis. Now let's move on to what questions we're going to ask and building that picture in front of us. So let's move on to history taking. Simon, where do we start with history taking of this patient? It's really important and a good general philosophy to have when working up paediatric patients that if the child doesn't look life-threateningly unwell and big sick as soon as you walk through the door then don't jump on them immediately because this really distresses children out it's really good practice to just hang back 
calm the child down, get them used to your presence in the room, have a little chat with the parents and just get a little bit of history from them before we um, start attacking them with SATs probes and various bits of monitoring and things that might, you know, upset them. So just bear that in mind. Um, obviously, you know, if the child's really unwell and you need to immediately crack on and examine them, then, then yeah, we have to. But just, just for those that aren't so much, just have a little think and maybe hold back a little bit. I've actually I've actually worked uh with a colleague in my early days who uh we we rocked up at an address with uh with with a child with probably bronchiolitis uh, and they were in the middle of having a feed and uh my colleague was about to start up to go up to them and and start applying monitoring and I was like no 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 we it's good that they're feeding let's just let's just chill out and uh because that's going to be one of the questions I'm going to ask in a minute so uh, we definitely do not want to stop them yeah dinner. yeah yeah and you're completely right and as we're going to find out later that that's that's essential actually because feeding so important so the features in the history then that we want to consider that are suggestive of of bronchiolitis so we're going to as always ask nice open questions and then filter down but the things we want to specifically look for that might suggest to us this patient has bronchiolitis is a one to three day uh, chorizal prodrome. So what we mean by that is that the first symptom that develops is like cold symptoms. So a runny nose is the most common one, rhinorrhea, and cold type symptoms that are all in the upper airway first. And in fact, just taking that back a little bit further, Simon, another thing that we can add in here and ask about, and often is the first thing that I notice walking into these kind of addresses, is their older sibling that's toddling around has a really snotty nose and they want to come up and show you their toys. And it's them that's had probably a five-day history of chorizal symptoms that they've picked up at nursery or something like that, and then brought back into the household. So that's just another little tidbit that I think this that's a classic picture of, of bronchiolitis in a, in a, in a young one when um, their older sibling also has a snotty nose but is just dealing with it a lot better definitely and that is literally the history i've been seeing all of the last two weeks the the older brother or sister who's just started a nursery just started at school you know maybe four five six year olds and then coming home with their cold and then giving it to uh to the little one so yeah you're completely right there after the carousal symptoms so that that goes on for one to three days we then notice the start of a cough, which can be dry or wet sounding. Then there's a low grade fever. And normally this is lower than 39 degrees. High grade fevers are possible with bronchiolitis. But if you have a temperature over 39, it really should make you have a strong consideration for the differentials so think about your pneumonias your sepsis and just really think you know is there something else going on here it's rare but you can get bacterial um, secondary infections on top of bronchiolitis so just have a have that in the back of your mind if there's a high fever parents may have noticed an increased work of breathing and this is really common something that parents have been telling me over the last few weeks that that I've seen they, they come in and they say my child's breathing really fast or their breathing's really labored they notice recessions they notice accessory muscle use they notice the flaring the head bobbing or they hear audible wheezes or grunting so all the things that we will cover later in examination. Parents notice this themselves and they might tell you that as the as a, as a symptom. So it's really important to pay attention to when they raise these features. We need to inquire about a child's feeding and fluid intake. 
we need to ask about their normal volume of feeds versus how much they're feeding in the current illness. Ideally, we'd like children to maintain above about a 50% normal feed rate. And anything lower than this is probably a bit of a red flag in the history that they may become dehydrated. This might be really challenging to ascertain, especially in breastfed patients, because obviously when we bottle feed, we can measure and parents will know ounces and how much ounces their child takes a day. But with breastfeeding, obviously we can't do that. That being said, from what I've seen so far, most parents have a really good uh, ability at estimating whether their child is at 75 or 50% of feeds as normal. So ask the parents just for a rough approximation and they'll normally get it pretty accurate. Remember that some children may feed in less volume, but actually they might feed more often, which is common when they're unwell. And this is actually fine just because their volumes per feed are reduced, but they're feeding more often. They're probably still getting a decent amount of feed. That's a really important point to reassure on the parents as well and explain why it's happening. So, you know, where these kids have, have a bunged up nose and they've got a, a bunged up airways, obviously kids of this age are, are obligate nasal breathers, particularly when they are breastfeeding. They they won't be able to feed for a long period of time because they, they're not able to breathe whilst they're doing it or not able to breathe properly whilst they're doing it. And so they will naturally want shorter feeds so they can catch their breath in between. And that's important to recognise and, and reassuring the parents as well why that's happening. What I've seen as a really good explanation from the paediatricians is they sort of say to the parents, if you just sprinted two or 300 metres and then someone asked you to drink 500 mils in a few gulps, you wouldn't be able to do it because you'd be <laughs> all the time. So they, they explain it that way and actually parents really seem to get it with that explanation. Continuing with hydration status, we need to inquire about urine output and specifically the number of wet nappies within the last 12 to 24 hours. This is a really good marker of whether a child is becoming dehydrated and may need admission. No wet nappies for 12 hours is a really worrying sign of deterioration. The last symptom that we should probably think about, and is quite rare and more common in younger babies, they may present with an isolated episode of apnea or apneas. Apneas are quite a concerning feature in a patient presenting with bronchiolitis. What's more, some really young babies can actually present with apnea being the only symptom of bronchiolitis. So it's really important that we ask parents about whether they've had any episodes where they've seemed to have stopped breathing or gone blue. So those are the features that are relevant to the history of presenting complaint. And as always, from here, we move on to our past medical history, drug history and allergies. So, Josh, do you want to talk about those? We need to do a quick screen about known medical conditions and comorbidities uh, men mentioned in the pathophysiology risk factors that might require us to lower our threshold for admission or further advice. It's good practice as part of all paediatric histories that we start inquiring and documenting birth history, including antenatal, perinatal and postpartum complications, such as abnormalities found on scans, complicated births, whether or not they were normal vaginal delivery, instrumented, induced or birthed via caesarean section. And we need to ask about any postpartum need for resuscitation or admission to SCABU or NICU units. Then we can go on to ask a little bit about drugs history. Hopefully, many of these young babies aren't going to be on any medications. However, rarely some children with comorbidities uh, or anything that was picked up in the past medical history as discussed above might be on some meds. 
We need to inquire about childhood immunizations and if the child's up to date with these and their vaccination schedule. And if they've got older siblings, it's also worth asking about their vaccination status. We need to ask about allergies, any allergies to medications or food or feeding intolerances. And uh, the most common one that we should be picking up and documenting is cow's milk protein allergies. Do you want to do social? Parental smoking is the next thing we need to inquire about. Evidence, which we will put in the show references, clearly show that there is an increased risk of chest infections in children who have parents that smoke. It's a good opportunity for us to do some good health promotion and advise about passive smoking. Explain to parents that even smoking outside has been shown to be detrimental and encourage them to seek support for quitting. That's uh, that's something that paramedics can lend real benefit to. I can't remember if we've spoken about it before on podcasts, but I'm quite keen on talking about teachable moments and the fact that we've got a healthcare patient relationship that is more fragile, but is su- more suitably fragile than some of the other health carers that have to form long-term uh, relationships with uh, with patients and with parents. So essentially what I'm saying is this is going to be the only time that we see these people so uh, we can afford to potentially annoy them by giving some healthcare promotion advice. Uh, whether or not that's received well is another thing. Whereas uh, carers that have to build a long-term relationship with these parents might be dissuaded from doing something that could make that relationship more difficult. I think most parents are actually quite forthcoming and willing to uh, listen. I think most people nowadays know that smoking is not good um, and they, they know that it's detrimental to health. So actually, most people are quite um, accommodating to you talking about it. I tend to try and play it in a lighthearted way. I, I myself am a little bit overweight, so I try and say, you know, none of us are perfect. We've all got our vices, but, you know, there's things that we can do that maybe might you know, improve our health. So just have a think about those. And most times it gets a little chuckle. And I think that it's a nice lighthearted message that they'll probably go away and, and, and take on board. Most parents are, are open to this sort of thing. I normally am referring to uh, this kind of stuff with COPD patients and those that are suffering an exacerbation. Um, that's a really powerful teachable moment. And, and we, as um, the clinicians attending them, need to understand our part to play in, uh, in their well-rounded health. The final point, which might seem a little bit irrelevant, but it's just really good, again, for documenting in paediatric patients and and asking about is obviously we've said who lives at home with the child and basically is there any social services involvement? It's just good to, uh, to, to note that down in our documentation. And and also, if there are other children in the property, we need to ask questions about what their living situation is, because they could live with different parents and there could be different parents for each of the children. But we also need to document what schools they go to. And if we get in the habit of asking that and doing that for all of the paediatric patients that we're involved with, it will become habit forming. And that's really, really important for times where we might have to make a social services referral or there might be child safeguarding concerns. Finally, part of the family history, we should just ask about history of atopy. So whether there's any uh, older siblings or the parents themselves that have asthma, eczema, hay fever, allergies, just because that might uh, lead us down a path in the future that this this child might also develop those sorts of presentations. Uh, And that's important when we think about the differentials later on. 
Moving on from history take, we're going to start our examination. These patients require a comprehensive examination, which can either follow a, an A to E approach, especially if the child's looking very unwell, or a systems examination. Whichever approach we choose to use, we should be asking ourselves the same things and looking at the same things. Now, I think something that's probably worth making clear, and I don't know your feelings on this, Simon, but when we start our assessment, I think it's highly appropriate that we get the child undressed and get them down to skin from an early point of view. So get that baby grow off. And if they're wearing a nappy, get that nappy off to make sure that we have full visibility of all of that child, which is one important for picking up any pertinent medical findings, but also has a really important part to play with safeguarding assessment. Yeah, definitely. It's it's not even something we should think about. It's something we should do. All children, young children of that age, when we're examining them, we should strip them right down to skin, not skin level assessment, down to their nappy. And then what we probably want to do is at the last minute, remove the nappy and examine around the sort of genitals and the buttocks just to make sure that there's no um, hidden like non-accidental injury, bruising or uh, any rashes that we, you know, we haven't noticed there. It's really important that we do that. And also we can then see whether there's wet nappies and stool and things as well, if there's anything there. And as always, we need to document that we've done that as well. Yeah, yeah, it's really important. And if you're not currently doing that in your practice down to a skin level examination, then we you really need to start looking at bringing this into your practice straight away. And there's lots of resources in the article that, that support that. So um, go and have a look at those. The first thing that we'll talk about as we're talking about bronchiolitis is our respiratory examination or findings on B. So we need to, again, looking at this child uh, down to skin, looking at evidence of increased work of breathing. So this will be things like subcostal, intercostal or supraclavicular recession. There might be sternal recessions uh, and we need to document these as mild, moderate or severe. Mild subcostal recessions are relatively commonplace for these children and they'll likely cope well even with these present. However, severe recession and other types of, of recession are more worrying features suggestive of a marked increase in work of breathing. We need to make it clear that all children with bronchiolitis have an increased some or some degree of increased work of breathing because that is part of the disease process as it develops. But we need to make a distinct difference between, as you just said, Josh, between mild recessions and severe and, and moderate recessions. Mild recessions, we, we can still look at discharge planning as long as there's no other concerns recession full stop does not mean that that we're really unwell it's just part of the disease process but we need to grade that on severity so that's really important that we accept that it can actually be a normal finding of bronchiolitis yeah i think that's fair of subcostal recessions uh, as you've said but things like supraclavicular and sternal recessions aren't normal yeah, absolutely. Children have really compliant chests. So if we're starting to get to the point where we're seeing the sucking down of the uh, the recessions above the clavicle, uh, which is obviously what we call supraclavicular, or that sternum is sucking in now, they're really working hard. So that would automatically be severe recession and, and severe increased work of breathing. So yeah, absolutely. Subcostal recessions is, is, is relatively normal, mild subcostal recessions. Anything that's severe or any of those other ones, yeah, that's, that's, that's concerning. In fact, Simon, subcostal and intercostal recessions are different. Can you just explain how? 
Yeah, so intercostal recessions are obviously our intercostal muscles. So that's basically in between our ribs. So you're looking for those that, that suction in, in between the rib rib cage where a subcostal is anything below the rib so it's below the costal margin so it's the subcostal ones that normally happen first and then obviously intercostal develops later and in addition to those we need to be looking for and documenting the presence or pertinent negatives of tracheal tug head bobbing nasal flaring thoracoabdominal asynchrony and grunting so tracheal tugs a sign that they're having to generate marked negative intrathoracic pressure to uh, to get air into their chest. Head bobbing is a sign of lethargy and fatigue. They're, they're not able to keep their head up, which is a vital part of obviously maintaining an airway. Again, nasal flaring is never normal. It's a sign that they're really having to work hard. They're really having to suck that, that air in. Thoracoabdominal asynchrony, where, where their belly is really distending out. They're using all of their abdominal muscles to just generate uh, negative pressure to get air in is a really bad sign. It's a sign that a child is really working hard. And finally, there's grunting. So grunting is a sign of self-peep. PEEP is positive end expiratory pressure. So this is something that we would uh, put on patients that we are ventilating in a closed circuit. They're breathing out uh, against some end expiratory pressure, which helps prevent atelectasis and helps keep alveoli in the open position. Uh, this is something that we typically see in our COPD patients when we walk in and they're breathing out through pursed lips. It's a reflex action, which is done to uh, help keep as many alveoli as we can open and uh, performing gas exchange. So this is what grunting is. Uh, it's a it's a bad sign and it's a sign of self-peep. I think a really, really good point that you just made, Josh, is the documentation of the pertinent negatives. So I've literally today seen a child that was seen yesterday and then has been brought back in today. And when you look at the child today, they look really, really ill, really sick with bronchiolitis. And they've got all of these red flag symptoms. But then when you look at the clinician who saw them yesterday's paperwork, they've clearly documented the absence of all of these symptoms. So that shows us that there has been a dramatic change in that child's presentation and they've got worse. And obviously mum's followed the worst advice and safety net and has come back. And that's sensible practice in paediatrics. It's defensible and that's defensible for paramedics. But it is really important that all these things are mentioned in your paperwork, specifically their their presence or their absence in, in document them really carefully because it will show um, a clear picture to whoever's looking at it if something happens that um, actually your initial assessment was 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 on par and was sensible so other things we need to be looking for and documenting is tachypneia. this is a, a common symptom uh, but excessive rates for that patient's age are worrisome we need to auscultate the chest there's likely to be a combination of either diffuse and widespread wheezes, crackles, or more than likely both. And unlike in older children and adults, crackles are rarely indicative of pneumonia and more likely a viral bronchiolitis. However, your suspicion of a pneumonia should be raised if the child is very unwell, has a high fever, so over 39, uh, and has an area of focal crackles or reduced air entry with overlying bronchial breath sounds. Cyanosis again, is something that we need to be picking up. And as we've said before, uh, any apneas we need to be documenting. If we witness any, uh, obviously, we need to respond to that appropriately. That's most of the features. But what we haven't talked about, Josh, is um, oxygen saturations. So what 
oxygen saturations would you be worried about in a child or what would you only be comfortable to discharge in a child so what you know so what 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 levels would would reassure or worry you yeah so um i know what's coming so but i'm going to give you the answer uh that i gave you when we talked about this beforehand so i think 94 it would be my cutoff so that that's generally the point that we would start thinking about giving people oxygen isn't it so uh i I think yeah 94 93 in a particularly well child uh, i might give other considerations but uh yeah i'd feel very uncomfortable with with 93 or less okay yeah and i I think that would be reflected across across most uh ambulance clinicians to be honest and i think many actually would say anything below 95 percent in a child um and it's actually reflected in jail calc that you know if a child has saturations lower than ninety five percent, then that that should worry us um, and and probably need us to convey to hospital. But funnily enough, that is not what the nice guidelines say, and this is not what I've experienced in in paediatrics. Actually, we're much more comfortable with a lower oxygen saturation than that. So if I said to you, Josh, that I would be comfortable to discharge a child with a saturation of ninety two percent in air how would you feel about that or how do you think paramedics in general would feel about uh, yeah that? i think you might get a few raised eyebrows yeah absolutely i i i was i was surprised when i went into pediatrics to honest they having you know looked at jail calc for years um i think jail calc's maybe one being a little bit overcautious there um and two um is is probably just trying to standardize guidelines where you know we might be concerned about sats lower than 95 in, in in other areas of practice with children so i think they're just trying to make it a, a common thing across the board i think actually nice uh have released a 2021 update to their guidelines and they're even actually going as far as saying that if the child is over six weeks old the saturations of 90 percent or higher in air is suitable for discharge we're starting to get into territories there that I, I'm, I am a little bit uncomfortable with um they they do still say that you know hospital transport should should be considered from primary care or, or ambulance services um in if they're lower than 92 percent. so i think 92 percent is a safe cut off that is well evidence-based um and obviously if anyone looks into that decision the nice guidelines categorically back that up so i think we can be reassured that actually saturations of 92 percent or higher in air that are um that are remaining at that level and not dipping down further but remain at 92 percent you know or higher uh, is a safe level for us to be working at yeah so that's that's really interesting isn't it so so a, a kid that you know is otherwise we're reassured by with sats uh that are that low 92 percent you're saying hospital you're not going to get a chest x-ray you're not going to get further bloods done uh you're not going to do anything extra no and and that's a that's a really good point because i think that uh, a lot of people falsely believe actually oh yeah well we need to take them to ed because they'll get a further assessment they'll get further investigations and actually with bronchiolitis the nice guidelines are clear and and they do not get further investigations we don't want to do chest x-rays in children in, in these children uh we don't want to do bloods and and they won't get those um, they will either be discharged if they're suitable for discharge, or as we'll come on later, they will get some supportive measures. But um, we'll, we'll talk about that in the treatment section. I guess while we're talking about SATs, uh, and we've we've already somewhat alluded to it, 
on feeding, but but let's just be rounded and, and cover it. What about a desaturation during breastfeeding or during bottle feeding, Simon? So interesting question, Josh. Um, and I think we can apply the same to sleep. So when children feed and when they sleep, yeah, their oxygen saturations do drop. Now, from what I've seen from uh, the senior paediatricians is that they're relatively comfortable as long as when they're not doing those activities, sleeping and feeding, their saturations are maintaining over 90. They're relatively happy and comfortable with that as long as they're not dropping really low. That being said, I think from um, a paramedic and, you know, emergency perspective, I'd like to see, for me to have a safe discharge, I'd like to see pretty much consistent saturations. It's an interesting point, and actually some of the theoretical rise in admissions for bronchiolitis is actually due to the introduction of SATs probes to ambulance services and to, uh, more well, more to primary care. So since we've started having a measurable level of oxygen saturation as a regular thing in primary care, the actual numbers of bronchiolitis of, of being admitted have, have gone up. And is that because actually we always used to clinically examine the child and go, yeah, they, they're feeding well and they're not that increased work of breathing and they never recorded SAT. So actually they'd still just send them home and the child got better anyway. So there is that theory that actually, you know, we're treating a number and not a patient, but the nice guidelines are there and I think they are already pretty safe and pretty lower than what we're used to as paramedics so I, I think we should we should go with those and just while we're talking about sats probes these are some simple things but we need to think about the trace that we're getting and if we're using the right equipment so firstly we need to look at the pleth index if we've got one uh, and consider you know is the figure that we're getting likely an accurate sats trace telling us what's in the blood uh, or could it be a perfusion issue could it be due to movement or something like that and then we need to ask ourselves whether or not we're using the right bit of kit for the right location so there was a patient safety alert in 2018 that again we'll put on the website and that i'd encourage people to go and read which was essentially saying that there's potential patient harm occurring from people using pulse oxes designed for one bit of the body on another and they're giving uh, falsely high readings and giving inaccurate readings so the classic thing would be putting a finger probe on an ear because a kid's wriggling about uh, well unless it is a specific ear probe then that isn't going to give an accurate reading so we need to make sure that we're using the correct kit and putting it on the, the piece of anatomy that it's designed for and the other thing with uh, pediatric probes i don't know if stuff has changed recently but there was a really bad habit when i was on the road of using single use probes but reusing them and they would become unsticky they would they would lose all kind of kinds of adhesion you know they probably weren't the 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 best things to be cleaning and reusing so um we ideally need to be using probes as the manufacturer intended them uh, and if we're not getting the access to that kit we need to be reporting it appropriately after we finish the respiratory component in the exam we should also look for signs of dehydration so this could be dry mucous membranes uh, a sunken anterior fontanelle in younger babies probably under one poor skin turgor a prolonged capillary refill time so over two seconds if there's an absence of tears when they're distressed and crying, 
if there's dry nappies, as we mentioned earlier, so like none in the last 12 hours. We then need to look about lethargy and irritability, and if they can't be consoled with their parents, especially after antipyretics, that's concerning. We need to assess their tone, because poor tone and reduced conscious level are worrying features. Look at their feeding status and how they're feeding in front of us, as well as what the parents are saying. Because a lot of the time, children will come in, and we see this really commonly, um, where parents report poor feeding, but actually, after a little bit of antipyretic and a little bit of TLC from us, the the child really drinking well and actually their condition improves so we want to comment on that and document that change in our notes actually we've been told this in the history but we've done some intervention and they're now feeding really well we want to look for any rashes and this is why it's really important to go down to uh to skin level including in the nappy area we want to assess for fever using a tympanic thermometer in those that are over four weeks or in the axilla for those that are under as per nice guidelines We want to look at their colour, whether they are warm peripherally, whether they're pink and well perfused, or whether they are cold, mottled or ashen. We want to listen to heart sounds because this is really important for our differentials, especially around congenital heart disease. We want to palpate bilaterally the femoral pulses for the same reason and possibly want to do a brief abdominal examination as well. When it comes to observations, we've obviously already talked about respiratory rate, heart rate, oxygen saturations and temperature, and then blood pressure and blood glucose uh, are only really required if they're clinically relevant. So that may be in this situation, if a child isn't feeding very well, then yes, we probably should check a blood glucose or if there's a risk of sepsis. We've got concerns around hyperglycemia. Blood pressure, again, late sign in a child, but can be added for a little bit more information if you feel that it's clinically relevant. So we'll include all of that on the, which often it's more helpful to read through these things, isn't it, uh, than listening to us witter on about it. But we'll also include a link to the online course, Spotting the Sick Child. And if you've not heard of this or if you've not completed it yet, really i can't advise anything more if you get nothing more from this podcast it's going and completing that online training course it's absolutely fantastic it's some of the best pediatric learning and assessment skills that i've certainly ever had and it's a course that is designed for all healthcare professionals made by pediatricians and other healthcare professionals that are working and recognizing these really sick kids yeah i really can't emphasize uh spotting the sick child i think it should be mandatory learning for every paramedic yeah fully agree with that i did it during my undergraduate i did it during my specialist paramedic training and i'm doing it again now during my pediatrics it is an absolutely phenomenal online course and and it's so good that it's free so let's go on to diagnosis then and differentials. So bronchiolitis is predominantly a clinical diagnosis there needs to be a reasonable level of diagnostic certainty but not necessarily absolute certainty when diagnosing it. As we discussed earlier in the podcast, the appropriately aged child with a history of coryza, followed by a persistent cough, increased worth of breathing, wheeze, crackles, or both on auscultation, a low-grade fever, so under 39, and poor feeding is the most common presentation as per the history and examination sections that we've discussed. However, we also need to be inquiring about and considering the other differentials that this presentation could be. So Simon, what are some of the other differentials and what sort of things are we going to be looking for? The two probably most common and closely overlapping ones we want to consider are pneumonia. So in this case, we're going to look, we'll probably find a a very unwell looking child, 
a high-grade fever, and focal crackles. Next is viral-induced wheeze. And this is probably the thing that overlaps with bronchiolitis as a differential and can be quite confusing the most. Here we're looking for a persistent wheeze with no crackles in a child who is most likely going to be 2+. plus. However, there is some overlap between the ages of 1 to 2. And reoccurrent wheezes with viral illnesses can be differentiated from bronchiolitis a little bit by how rapid the onset of symptoms are. With bronchiolitis, we've talked about that sort of one to two day, maybe three prodrome of being chorizal and then a gradually worsening um, development of the lower respiratory symptoms. Whereas a child with a viral induced wheeze will be much more rapid. They'll become wheezy within hours as opposed to the days we see with bronch. There might also be a family or patient history of atopy. So that could be known asthma, eczema or allergies and and hay fever and sensitivities. So those are all things that might make us think that it's viral induced wheeze as opposed to bronchiolitis. And it's quite an important differentiation because the, the management is completely different. Another differential we want to consider that's uh, respiratory could be pertussis, uh, more commonly known as whooping cough. This is a characteristic hacking and relentless cough in little bouts with an inspiratory whoop. This is now quite rare, however, because of vaccines, uh, and uh, we probably want to be more concerned about this in the unvaccinated child. Croup. I think all of us have heard that characteristic seal bark cough. Uh, it's more, much more upper airway. There might be a little bit of stridor. So, you know, we're, we're relatively comfortable with that. And again, the management's different, so we need to differentiate. Moving away from some of the uh, illnesses, we need to think about foreign body aspiration. So this might be suggested from the history or concern from the parents, if there's been any witness choking episode, or if there's a unilateral or focal wheeze. Gourd, uh, gastroesophageal reflux disease, then we're more likely going to get a chronic cough, poor weight gain, reflux symptoms, and maybe distress post-eating. And the final thing I think we should consider is congenital heart disease and heart failure. So this might present with cyanosis, uh, shortness of breath that's more in keeping with cardiac symptoms, uh, hepatomegaly, heart murmurs, abnormal pulses or abnormalities that are found at either the birth or the six-week NIPE, uh, NIPE being a, ne- a neonatal um, examination. The birth one is always conducted by either appropriately trained midwives or doctors in hospital or healthcare professionals in hospital, and the six-weeks one is normally done by the GP. So that pretty much covers the differentials of bronchiolitis. So what about the treatment? So let's talk about how we treat and manage bronchiolitis. We've reached our diagnosis and suspect that it's a case of bronchiolitis. We're going to cover admitting versus discharging after this section. But if we're transporting and our patient needs treatment, it's time to decide which treatments we're going to give. So wheezy child should be an easy one, right, Simon? That's salbutamol nebulizer. Simple, yeah? Well, it would seem so. It's it's logical to think wheeze uh, and then nebs. A lot of clinicians would assume that to be correct. Uh, In bronchiolitis, that's not the case. And salbutamol is a treatment that we should not not give. There was a systematic literature review conducted by O'Brien et al. in 2018, which will pop in the uh, in the show notes 
And that looked at proposed treatments for bronchiolitis. And unfortunately, it's conclusions which are not just echoed here. Um, you can read them in the NICE guidelines. You can read them on Don't Forget the Bubbles. Basically concluded that there is relatively limited medication choices for children with bronchiolitis. And in fact, with the exception of supportive treatment, so that's feeding and hydration support and oxygenation and ventilation, if it's needed, there isn't much else that we can do. The treatments that we should not use then are salbutamol inhalers or nebulizers, ipratropium nebulizers, nebulized adrenaline, nebulized saline. That one is, is basically going to be considered in the RCT settings, but, but not for, for standard use. No steroids and no antibiotics. So I think it's important that we just cover a little bit about why salbutamol isn't going to help these patients because i think that would be the, the probably go-to that we'd want to try we hear a wheeze in a kid and we, we, we just we want to do something about it so i think it's important we understand why it doesn't work so we all know that salbutamol is a beta agonist it's effective in the treatment of bronchoconstriction and the causes of wheeze in the larger airways and we obviously give it regularly for, for conditions like asthma however as i mentioned in the systematic literature review it's not been found to show any clinical benefit in bronchiolitis and has actually shown a small amount of unwanted effects, namely tachycardias and distress. The reason that it was commonly believed not to work has for a long time been attributed to the fact that we're taught, and, and it's still being passed down now, that children under one don't have the same amount of functional beta adrenoreceptors in the lungs that older children and adults do. So salbutamol, therefore, has nothing to basically work on however more recent evidence shows us that actually this is incorrect and children do have functioning beta receptors so with this in mind why does salbutamol not have the effect we want it to with children in bronchiolitis i think to answer that we need to look back at the pathophysiology of bronchiolitis and this is why an understanding of disease process is really important in our practice We've already discussed earlier that the wheeze is caused by turbulent airflow from mucus buildup and edema of the lower airways. This is in direct contrast to the smooth muscle bronchoconstriction of the larger airways we see in other respiratory diseases, such as viral-induced wheeze and asthma. For this reason, that lack of smooth muscle constriction is why salbutamol has nowhere for it to work, as it does nothing to improve the mucus buildup or the, de the edema and swelling of the lower airways. The challenge, however, comes when, as we mentioned earlier, we consider the slightly older child, so the child who's between the one to two year age group, whose pathogenesis might be more in keeping with viral-induced wheeze presentations. Salbutamol here is an effective and mainstay component of the treatment. Therefore, we really need to differentiate between bronchiolitis and viral induced wheeze and basically this comes down to some degree of clinical judgment we've put in the article a link to gp peds tips blog which has a really good summary on how to differentiate between bronchiolitis and viral induced wheeze primarily this involves the differences we mentioned earlier maybe a slightly older child or the onset of symptoms and how these develop, whether it's hours or days. 
Both have overlapping features, however, and it's not unreasonable in the child over one year of age where you suspect viral induced wheeze could be the cause of symptoms to give a trial of salbutamol via an inhaler or a nebulizer and see if this burst therapy improves them. One thing I'd say on this is that it's really important that you listen before and after and assess the child's clinical condition and whether there is improvement, as if bronchiolitis is the condition and there's no improvement, continued nebulizers are not going to improve the situation. So make sure you have a thorough pre and post assessment. Okay, so that was quite a lot of information. Let me just try and summarize what you've said for my tiny brain, just making sure that uh, I've got this right. So salbutamol is ineffective in bronchiolitis. That's not because young children don't have the beta-2 receptors in their airways. It's because the cause of the wheeze isn't a bronchospastic cause. It's due to inflammation and mucus in the airways causing turbulent airflow. In older children, our differential is expanded to include viral-induced wheeze, and therefore salbutamol might be of benefit. But the key to whether or not we need to be trialling them on salbutamol lies in the history, as we've all described above. And if we're going to try one of these children on salbutamol, we need to be listening before and after to see whether or not there's a benefit, because giving repeated salbutamol nebulizations may not be of benefit and could be harmful. And we know that uh, salbutamol isn't the nicest medication to have when you're a young child and you're feeling particularly grouchy. It will cause you to mount a tachycardia. It can cause you to have a tremor. Uh, one, which just isn't going to make you feel very nice, but also uh, an artificial tachycardia in a potentially fluid deplete child may have all sorts of cardiac output effects and uh, push them over the edge. So uh, we need to be a bit more nuanced than just hearing wheeze and smashing salbutamol on. Elegantly changed my uh, long waffle to uh, a, an actual useful thing for the listeners, <laughs> their job. So uh, yeah, thanks for that. I could have just cut out everything you, you said, but I thought I thought that would be more appropriate. Yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. Let's go on then to uh, admission versus discharge. What kind of things are going to allude to us that we've got a child in front of us that might be appropriate for admission? and one that we might be able to discharge or refer on to another follow-up or another clinician to uh, get a second opinion. Paramedics are healthcare professionals, and we need to find a responsible balance between admitting every child inappropriately and discharging a child who's too unwell. So in order to do that, yeah, you're right, we do need to formulate a safe management plan. So I think in order to do that, the first thing we need to think about are the red flags from our history and examination that mean we should absolutely be transporting and admitting these children to hospital. Okay, so they're those things like apneas, uh, whether or not they're observed or reported, a child that looks very unwell to us as a healthcare professional, uh, severe respiratory distress, so grunting, marked chest recession, a respirate over 60, cyanosis, poor feeding, less than 50% of normal or dry nappies, other signs of dehydration, uh, oxygen sats under 92, or a reduced level of consciousness, so severe lethargy or tiring, those sorts of things. Yep. And then just to um, add more onto that, uh, the risk factors that we talked about earlier, they obviously might make us uh, have a lower threshold for admission. 
also the we need to think about the disease progression of bronchiolitis when we're thinking about whether to admit or discharge a child so we've already talked about the the development period for bronchiolitis is the chorizal period from one to three days and that actually bronchiolitis peaks at the three to five day point before having a plateau phase so What we then need to consider is where in the course of the illness the child that you're seeing is, especially if they've got borderline admission symptoms. So if we take two patients, Josh, one with borderline admission symptoms on day two of of their total illness and one with borderline admission symptoms who's on day five of their illness, which one do you think we should be more concerned about? So probably one that's earlier on in their illness, so day two, I'd have thought. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And the reason for that is because because we know that bronchiolitis develops over three to five day periods, if a child is already at the point of borderline admission symptoms and concerning features at day two, we know that their disease process is actually going to progress and get worse potentially for another two or three more days. Whereas a child who's on day five or six, we know that actually they've probably hit the worst of their, their symptoms are going to get with the bronchiolitis. And actually, they're now going to be on the plateau phase and probably starting to get better. So it's really important to know where that child is in their disease course, because it will alter how we think about stuff. Another thing we need to think about is parental concern and the parent's ability to cope. On this note, many patients are really anxious and and quite rightly worried about their children. That's completely natural. I hear a lot of ambulance clinicians say, we'll pop you to hospital to get checked over and to get you reassurance. My personal feeling on the matter is we're healthcare professionals as paramedics and actually, where possible, we should be doing that reassurance ourselves. I think if you assess a child thoroughly and you are confident and competent in your management plan, and you convey a diagnosis and a sensible plan of reassurance to parents, then I think that this is something that definitely can be done at home, and we should be the clinicians that are reassuring these parents. Yeah, and that that kind of comes back to the the things that are involved with treatment that that kind of comes back to treatment doesn't it so we we said a lot about the things that don't work uh, and the things that we shouldn't be doing obviously the the only things that that do work in bronchiolitis is time for the kid to get better uh, supporting feeding and actually there's probably a lot to be said about supporting the parents as well because they're going to be tired they're going to be exhausted they're going to be probably at their wits end if if uh, baby's been disturbed and they will have had disturbed sleep uh, and they're worrying and so a huge part of our treatment for not necessarily the patient but also for the parents is to is to ease that anxiety and, and instill confidence in them and so we need to make them feel that they've been listened to we need to make them understand that they've done the right thing in calling for help if they were worried they can always call us back uh, which will be part of our our safety netting that we talk about in a bit but really helping to reassure them because we need them on side if the treatment plan is going to work and if if we're going to be keeping this child out of hospital and so um, keeping them calm and informed about what's going on uh, and understanding the situation is is really really important and i agree with you simon that's absolutely our job it's not our job to take uh, the patient somewhere else to have another clinician do that 
glad you agree with me. That makes a that makes a change. Um, you you just struck on a really good point, which is the um, safety netting and the fact they can always call us back. I think that's the final component of um, admitting discharge decisions that we need to think about is the access to that help. So whilst in an ideal world it shouldn't play a factor i think we need to think about it and the nice guidelines do mention it that if there is a considerable distance or barrier to accessing help so that could be really far from the nearest ed if they're going to self-present or remote areas where ambulance responses could be really lengthy especially in the the current climate two three hours maybe plus to, to, to to get to them if they did need help then you know, could that factor into our decisions a little bit? It's mentioned in the NICE guidelines. I think we need to think about that, you know, that if someone's so far from a hospital, they can't get their child seen quickly, then, you know, maybe we should have a lower threshold for for review or, or um, finding another plan. So now we've come to the final hurdle. We've utilised evidence-based guidelines to not only form our diagnosis of bronchiolitis and decide that that child doesn't need conveyance, and is suitable for discharge we now need to facilitate a safe management plan with safety netting and worsening advice as we've already said we need to reassure the patient's parents about the process of bronchiolitis and the likely course the illness is going to take uh, dependent on where this child is within the disease process specifically we need to pinpoint if we suspect they're going to be improving from this point onwards, or if there's still the potential that they might deteriorate a little bit as part of the normal pathogenesis of the disease. Remember, the only active treatment that the hospital can provide is oxygenation and ventilation support, as well as feeding support if we can't maintain these at home. And we need to encourage to continue attempts at feeding. Consider little and often uh, as an approach for this, for the reasons that we've discussed at length. The most important thing we need to do is thoroughly discuss the red flag symptoms that the parents need to watch out for. And we'll link to these in the article and they can be easily found in the bronchiolitis diagnosis and management guideline from NICE. But broadly speaking, these are the worsening work of breathing. We need to physically talk through the signs of recession and accessory muscle use and make the parents confident in being able to identify these. We need to ask the parents to be aware of fluid intake and if it drops below 50 to 75% or there's no wet nappies for the previous 12 hours, they obviously need to be calling us back. Make them aware that any apneas, grunting or cyanosis definitely give us a call on 999. And be aware of exhaustion and listlessness or severe agitation where the patient isn't consolable at all with the parents. If they become pale, mottled or feel cold to the touch, develop a rash that doesn't disappear with pressure or in children under three months who spike a temperature over 38 degrees, we, we need to encourage the parents to call us back. I'd add to that, Josh, that generally I think we need to reassure parents that if they are worried that their child is getting worse, their condition is deteriorating and they have concerns, that they absolutely should call us back or seek medical attention or attend uh, an emergency department. We absolutely want to see these parents and we don't want them to feel that they're a burden. So it's really important that we reassure them that we're always here and we they can always contact us and that you know that's a perfectly acceptable thing to do. And we also need to reassure the parents that the cough component of bronchiolitis can persist for a couple of weeks after the other symptoms have resolved. Uh, and this is important to flag because it can avoid further unnecessary contact to primary care.
It's good practice for us to provide written and verbal worsening advice to patients. And so the Healthier Together website is a really good resource for this as it contains a, a wide range of safety netting and discharge advice leaflets that can be printed or loaded onto a smartphone uh, or even sent via a text message to the parent's phone for them to open. Right, so another large subject that we've covered and a huge amount of information uh, uh, and a huge amount of information presented it's really really good to absorb this information slow time and re-revise it which is why we write those articles and there's a huge huge amount of other resources uh, available for you to go and learn and refine your understanding and information from so let's summarize the large amount of information that we've talked about so bronchiolitis is a condition that is highly likely to present to you around this time of year in the autumn and the winter it typically presents in patients under 12 months but can present in patients as old as two years that classic history is a couple of days history of coryza maybe with a sibling who's had a snotty nose brought back from nursery a few days beforehand followed by a cough a low-grade fever and then presenting with a crackly and wheezy chest potentially off food fluids and generally a little bit grouchy and grumbly we need to do a thorough assessment again ensuring this is down to skin level really searching hard and and documenting well the presence or absence of the red and amber flags that we've discussed earlier in the podcast treatment well it's mostly supportive we mostly need to let these children get better on their own and refer into hospital the ones that might need a little bit of extra support but again that is generally only oxygen ventilation support and feeding support we don't need to be giving children with bronchiolitis salbutamol or other nebulizers because it doesn't work and it's not the right therapy for these patients. And in patients that we aren't referring on to hospital, we need to be giving a really good safety net and really reassuring those parents and getting them on board with the treatment plan and understanding what's happening to their child. That's all for this month. Thank you for, again for listening. Really do encourage you to navigate to the website to read the article and read some of those other resources that are available for you. And uh, if you would really help us out by sharing us on Twitter, sharing us in your uni groups or with your other uh, colleagues that you work with and giving us a like and a review on iTunes, that really helps get our CPD out to more and more people and helps us continue making free CPD for you. So that's it for me. Thanks very much for listening. Take care. And we'll see you next month.